You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. I'll say only a very brief word about this morning's panel and then hand it over to our really wonderful panelists um, who I hope and we hope will feel less like panelists and more like conversationalists. Um, and the aspiration of, of this project is to really enter into a conversation about uh, a contemporary urgency that we'll quickly learn is far from contemporary. Um, an urgency that might seem European or North American, but is far from only that as well. So um, today's panel is part of um, a recurring lecture uh, that we unfortunately launched uh, three years ago in 2016 um, in memory and in honor of Srinivasa Ravamudan, who is a professor and dean at Duke University and president of CHCI for many years. Um, during his presidency, the kind of what we might call the, the global turn in CHCI was actualized, and um, many of you are here and are involved in projects that were very much part of his uh, inspiration and his vision. In previous years, we've um, celebrated and remembered uh, Srinivas's uh, sense of CHCI and extraordinary commitment to CHCI with lectures by Isaac Julian um, and Ashil Mbembe last year. And this year, we've broken open the format um, to involve um, friends in, um, in person and in spirit. Uh, thinking about a project that ties the contemporary um, and, and the past, that ties the humanities to a set of uh, contemporary questions about how to live in the world. So with that, our panelists on name, we have bios not in the objects that you're holding, but if you link up uh, to the online program with the QR code that is in, that you're wearing, many of you are wearing, you'll be able to read uh, the full biographies of our panelists. Homi Baba will convene this conversation and, and moderate it, if we want to call it that, direct it, um, conduct it. And um, Jim Chandler, who uh, served for many, 17 years, as director of the Frankie at Chicago, professor of English and cinema studies there, and longtime member of the CHCI board, um, is to his left. Deb Johnny Ganguly, who's uh, currently the uh, director of the Institute at UVA, also a scholar of uh, English and global literatures. Um, Pramesh Lalu, who served for many years as director of the um, Center for Humanities Research at the University of the Western Cape, and also involved in an array of projects focused on um, the arts, humanities, and aesthetic education. And Wang Wei, a new member of the CHCI board, who directs the Institute for Advanced Study in Humanities and Social Sciences, or Social Sciences and Humanities at Tsinghua University in Beijing. So please join me in welcoming these wonderful guests and in participating in this fabulous conversation. Thank you very much for being here. I'm, uh, both delighted to be with you and with, the, uh, with our wonderful panelists, but also uh, dismayed at not having Srinivas with us. And I would like to mark the occasion not by a few moments of silence, but by a few moments of applause 
to the great achievement and the great spirit of community and convergence, of globality with a sense of national crises and national necessities that Srinivas brought to us. So let us applaud you. introduction because we have extraordinarily rich responses to this controversial and somewhat perplexing uh, concept of the radical middle, uh, which I proposed to Sarah and Jane, and they very graciously accepted it when we realized that Claudia Rankine would not be able to be with us today because of health issues. And uh, she was going to give a talk, and then she and I were going to be in conversation, but that didn't happen. And at that point, um, when we were scouting around for ideas, I uh, proposed that there was something that was deeply perplexing to me, and I found very problematic at a personal level. And maybe other people might find that also both intriguing and uh, an anguish, an anguishing, uh, and out of that came this particular idea. So I'm going to be very uh, brief about it. First of all, the idea of a radical middle has got nothing to do with a, with a, a kind of centrist position on any, on the contrary. It's not to do with somehow seeing the polarities or extremities within political discourse or cultural debate and finding a negotiated middle. So nothing to do with that. It's more to do with the fact that as I experience political uh, and cultural uh, conflicts uh, and competitiveness in the world, I keep feeling uh, not marginalized, but I feel that I'm in a space of transition, that there's a kind of transitionality, of waiting for something, of being caught in the middle, a feeling of wanting to uh, somehow work in the interstices uh, rather than at either end. So that's what this issue about the radical middle is. Uh, it's not to do with moderation, but it's to do with problems of mediation in contemporary political, cultural, and humanistic uh, issues, both in the university and, and beyond it. And I think the sense of being caught in the middle uh, and needing to work from that confusion, from that in-betweenness, for me, is represented by the fact that the various forms of uh, right-wing nationalisms that seem to have uh, disseminated across the world some people call it uh, global populist uh, uh, nationalism, others call it tribalism, others recognize it as a kind of growth in a majoritarianism under the umbrella of a particular nationalist religious, religious political ideology as in India, or uh, often motivated by a huge rage uh, displaced and projected upon minorities and, and migrants by particular interest at the moment. But the right, with their um, obnoxious 
and obstructive view seem to have found a constituency. The recent election in India, I suggest to you, is a mark of that. Uh, they have found a constituency in India at the moment, an overwhelming constituency through the ballot box. Um, they have found a certain politics or and a political rhetoric. It's a rhetoric of degradation, not simply a rhetoric of discrimination, which seems to have some sense of a legal repair to it. But this is a sense of a language of degradation, a language that you cannot fact check because its affective power lies in the moment in which it is made. And Hillary Clinton saying, please go to hillaryclinton.com and fact check this, or CNN saying fact check it is not the issue, unfortunately, anymore. The impact is in the making of the speech act, and the impact is in the and the affective mobilization. So it's a politics of affect as much as it is a politics of any kind of uh, 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 reference to a, a cultural past or a religious past. They found a rhetoric, they found a politics, they found a constituency. And when Steve Bannon said uh, in The Economist that uh, Obama hadn't given the people enough nationalism, I said to Trump, uh, let's give them more nationalism and let's make it, let's go barbarian. Uh, I think that that is something that we need to ponder on. What are the conditions of barbarism today? After the Mueller report, as you know, he said, I suggested now to, to the White House that we go full animal. Uh, so what is this rhetoric about? On the left, however, I don't think, I think there is a faltering about the way in which affect could be mobilized for a progressive politics. We certainly have mobilized it, and I say we advisedly, on single issues. Black Lives Matter, on the Me Too movement, and there are movements like this in other parts of the world. And certainly that has something of this affective charge to it, and it also has a politics of mediation. It has a politics of working in the interstices. It is a politics of what I'm calling a, a radical middle, which is not, I stress again, centrist. But there is still a crisis of how one finds solidarity uh, on the left, across the uh, across various regions and across various political positions, and how one articulates this in a larger architecture of affiliation and a larger architecture of um, of action that is able not simply to lick one's wounds but to make a certain intervention into this barbaric uh, populism. What is the constituency of this radical middle? How do we articulate it? Where do we go with it? I think this is a very important issue, and it is particularly galling, since these right-wing populist uh, 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 movements, which are in power at the moment, have not succeeded effectively at all in changing or transforming the economic base. They have failed in their economic policies, but at the same time, they seem to have developed a certain kind of sovereignty. I think for us, this is a moment of self-questioning, but out of that self-questioning, I hope, will come a self-confidence. And I will leave it at that.
and ask Jim to take them. Thank you very much. I'm speaking from here, thank you, Romy. I'm speaking from here only because I have a PowerPoint to work with and uh, uh, need to click on my computer as I go along. Um, I'm happy to join this panel, uh, uh, Global Assembly as it is, and my, uh, my intervention, my initial framing will actually be to um, uh, bring us back to the, to the local, to the very local, to, uh, to Trinity College, um, and to two figures um, who I think it might be useful for us to think with on this question, um, both uh, graduates of the college, Jonathan Swift and Edmund Berg, um, neither known for their temperance, uh, I should add, um, not, not in the first instance figures of, of moderation, to use Romy's uh, word. Um, this panel is in a way a continuation for those of you who were in Virginia last year of Wendy Chun's uh, plenary last year about forms of polarization in contemporary tech culture, the use of algorithmic technologies uh, to create what she calls a homophily, uh, that is the tendency to group like with like, and she had proposals for how to move forward there, uh, from there. Um, I'm going to, as I've said, go in a slightly different uh, direction. So the first point I'll speak, I'll say one word about Swift and two words about Burke. Um, satire uh, in contemporary has probably never been more important in certainly my lifetime than it is at the present moment, and certainly in, in Europe and America and elsewhere, um, and, and in a decidedly Swiftian vein. Um, Donald Trump likes to say that uh, the satirists are all one-sided, they're all against him. But there's a long tradition of thinking about post-Swiftian satire as uh, uh, something that, that, that attacks all sides uh, from the center. Um, and I think there's a lot of truth in this tradition. Uh, if you think about contemporary Swiftian satire like Black Mirror, that famous Swiftian opium, opium, opening uh, episode of Black Mirror, um, it's, it's, it's a plague on both houses. It is not a, it's not really a partisan attack. I would say the same thing is true for perhaps the leading American satirist of the last 20 years, John Stewart. John Stewart's big issue in Congress right now is not uh, a partisan issue. Uh, he's been attacking both parties in Congress for not supporting uh, properly 9-11 responders uh, who were disabled by their work in, in the, the rescue mission. Uh, you can't get a more centrist issue than that, and that's the issue that John Stewart is most identified with. Uh, as for Swift himself, um, in Gulliver's Travels, remember, he was as hard on the, the Big Ender Party as he was on the Little Ender Party. The Big Ender Party was the party that opened their eggs at the small end and the Big Ender, the big ender Party, the Big Ender. And um, uh, th that's, that's characteristic of his work. And I want to remind you of uh, Edward Said's uh, late work on Jonathan Swift. He was trying to write a book about Swift, um, which is a different way of thinking about Swift in the radical middle and a useful one. Swift's satire stages a dramatic encounter, he said, between the anarchy of resistance to the written page and the abiding Tory order of the page. Um, that's a, a useful way of thinking about satire, and I think generally thinking about Swiftian satire as an invitation to a radical middle. Uh, rather than to uh, one side or other of a predetermined 
partisan battle it, uh, is, a, is a useful way to go. Um, so about, about Burke then. Um, I'm going to address a, a particular passage in Burke, and it's going to come from the Reflections on the Revolution in France, his, his uh, famous critique of the French Revolution. Um, and that's a text that, of course, has enabled, or did enable, a kind of seizure uh, of Burke by the conservative right for a good century or so. Um, and that's where he, he stayed in their, in their grasp until a series of books appeared over the last few years. Uh, Luke Gibbons, who's here, Edmund Burke in Ireland, uh, Jennifer Pitts' remarkable book, Empire, um, David Bromwich's intellectual biography, and most recently this book, a 950-page intellectual biography of Burke that I would not actually have wished shorter, um, which identifies five issues in Burke's career, um, well beyond the issue of the French Revolution, the late one, that is reform of parliament, uh, the American Revolution, uh, the uh, East Asian Company's management of the, of the, uh, of the colonies in South Asia, uh, the question of Ireland, and the French Revolution. Now, Burke's positions on the first four of those are what we would now generally regard as, as progressive. Uh, it's, the, it's the approach to the French Revolution that seems to be the, uh, the problem, and it was thought to be a problem at the time when Victor Dupont wrote to Burke uh, to invite his input about the revolution, he expected that Burke would be kind of on side with the National Assembly in France, and Burke said, actually, I have other views than you might imagine. And Burke's reputation for, um, in his own time, is reflected in the, the cartoons of, collected by Nicholas Robinson, who you heard about yesterday, the husband of the former president of Ireland. Um, so on the one hand, he was regarded as a, a trimmer, uh, blowing with the wind, attacking Lord North and then attacking the East with Hastings, uh, as a Whig with a Tory face under his mask, uh, and as a completely bifurcated political personality. On the other hand, he was a battler. Here he is battling Hastings. Uh, a, a Quixote-like crusader for lost causes, uh, always as a, as a Jesuit. His mother was Catholic, was well known at the time and as a fiery orator. So one question becomes, Isaac Cranley talked about the rage of Edmund Burke. Um, so the question becomes, what to make of this contradiction between Burke as trimmer, Burke as delicate? And I want to say that the way to uh, come to terms with this is actually to engage with what he actually wrote about what he himself called a sort of middle. Uh, so I want to turn now very briefly in my last few minutes to um, this passage. Can you read that? All right. Um, I'm just going to read part of it. Um, this was Burke's account of uh, the, the understanding of the discourse of the rights of man as it began to develop in the late 18th century uh, by the French and also by the British dissenters. These metaphysic rights entering into common life like rays which pierce into a dense medium are by the laws of nature refracted from their straight line, indeed, in the gross and complicated mass of human passions and concerns, the primitive rights of man undergo such a variety of refractions and reflections that it becomes absurd to talk of them as if they continued in the simplicity of their original direction. 
nature of man is intricate, the objects of society are the greatest possible complexity, and therefore no simple disposition or direction of power can be suitable either to man's nature or to the quality of his affairs. I'm going to skip that now. The pretended rights of these theorists are all extremes, and in proportion as they are metaphysically true, they are morally and politically false. The rights of men are in a sort of middle, incapable of definition, but not impossible to be discerned. Um, so, let me just quickly uh, point out a couple of features of this passage. Uh, the, the three dimensions I want to look at. The first is uh, a, a reasonably straightforward uh, claim about the importance, uh, the kind of critique of simplicity, of singleness, of primitiveness. Uh, in behalf of something more developed and complex in the understanding of political life. This is not uninteresting. Um, the second is closer to the kind of position that Homie was saying he was uh, uninterested in, um, the critique of, of extremes. Um, the rights of these theorists are all extremes, the rights of men are in a sort of middle, and then there he will speak of balances and compromises suggesting some orientation to what would become a liberal tradition, although the liberal tradition takes a different form from what Burke proposed. Uh, but this is the feature that interests me the most. This notion, this third dimension of the middle as a kind of medium, uh, bringing us directly to what Homie was talking about with the question of mediation. Um, and uh, I think this is the most interesting feature of Burke's work. It links him in lots of ways with the work of a uh, thinker like Wittgenstein, whose understanding of semantics is always on the verge of resolving itself into questions of, of, of pragmatics and usage. Um, and the, what, what interests me most about this passage is the way in which it describes what it's itself doing. That is, he has taken the abstractions uh, that he sees in political discourse of his time and himself refracted and reflected them in his own language. So that the very play between mean between extremes, middle and medium, becomes part of the, 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 the sense of being in a medium of language when, when one is uh, operating uh, politically. Um, I think uh, Burke's opponent here, he become, this is an opponent who becomes very explicit in his next couple of, year, next couple of years of his writings, is Rousseau. Uh, Rousseau himself thought that all mediation was contamination, very famously, which is why his own speech resolves into paradox, paradoxes and contradictions. Um, uh, I must begin by setting aside all the facts, he says at the beginning of the second discourse, or we must be forced to be free, famously, in the social contract. Uh, Rousseau became an explicit target for Burke, and I think the sense of the of unmediated politics was exactly what he was ta attacking in Rousseau. For Burke, all the good things are mixtures. So it's back to Wendy Chun. Um, the uh, government of Britain was a, uh, a, is a uh, mixed constitution of monarchy and <coughs> parliamentary components. Uh, the famous code of chivalry he defined. He defined as a mixed system of opinion and sentiment. Um, and his sense of economy was also mixed. J.J. Pocock pointed this out years ago. And he said that the thing about Burke's understanding of why the revolution happened is that they didn't have a mixed economy. They couldn't, they couldn't exchange money for land in France, and you could in England. And so, in Burke's account, all this paper accumulated in Paris until it went up in flames in 1789. 
Um, so all those mixtures uh, are very much uh, in line with the kind of Wendy Chun project in a certain way and uh, take Rousseau as their, as their opposition. I want to conclude just by suggesting that um, the film you're going to see tonight, uh, uh, produced by Claire Dwyer Hogg and uh, performed by Stephen Ray, Hard Border, um, can be very profitably understood in terms of the sort of uh, framework I've just uh, laid out for you here. Um, the, the border for them is a, a, a kind of medium. Um, it's a kind of middle. Uh, it's, it's also a place of anger and rage. This is not a, a neoliberal middle. Um, and the medium of the production of their own beautiful text, uh, which is highly poetic, and the montage of Hogg's uh, direction, I think, produce exactly the kind of refractive, reflective medium that Burke is talking about here. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Um, uh, thank you for also reminding us, in relation to affect, that maybe there is a range I don't want to call it a righteous rage, that sounds too fantasy, but there's a rage um, uh, in this radical level that we have not articulated enough. Whereas on the other side, on the barbaric nationalist side, rage seems to be uh, uh, a, 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 almost a principle of the <coughs> political institutions. And John Stewart raged before Congress yeah, yeah. was a good example. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah and Jane, for uh, inviting me and Naomi for inviting me to participate in this panel. So, this is especially special because uh, it's in, in, in memory of a dear friend, Srinivasar Ramodan, who, who would relish such provocative and uh, generative debates. So, how do we inhabit the clash of populist fictions? where politics appears to dwell in our time in a kind of an aesthetic confusion of grievances past and present, imagined and real. We witness daily with alarm the wanton and dangerous vulgarity of the far right, matched by zealous policing on the left, even as we struggle with deep unease. A spectrum across what I can only say is a hard capitalist realism on the one hand, and a kind of a global left melancholy on the other. So uh, the radical middle, we're, many of us are liter literary scholars here, we are humanists, it takes no imagination to see the radical middle as an oxymoron. For the use of the middle in our everyday lives connotes the average, the uninteresting, the ignored, the invisible, the stagnant, and even the loathed. Think of terms like middle class, middle-aged, middle-born, middle-brow, <laughs> the middle of the road, middlemen, and so on. Historically, of course, there are departures from these, this phrase. I mean, think of the middle passage and the trauma of transatlantic slavery, and in references to the middle ages in European historiography. And then, of course, we have the long genealogy of thinking the middle or the mean, um, as spiritual goal, moral virtue, and political ideal among a spectrum of thinkers from the ancient 
world to our times. Think of Buddha's middle way, of the Buddha, Aristotle's virtue ethics, Golden Mean, Confucius, and our colleague Wang Hui will talk about uh, him. Edmund Burke, we just heard um, Jim uh, from my part of the world, but who had a very deep connection to Ireland and through. Yes, Rabindranath Tagore famously has many, many sections on what constitutes the middle in, in, in the national imaginary. Hannah Arendt, and one can, one can just go on. So the specific issue I want to address in the few minutes that I have here is the problem of thinking the radical middle in the shorthand way that Homi, Homi put to us, but adding a dimension to it in an era when the medium of the digital appears to exacerbate political polarization through generating online tribal enclaves. What happened to one's moral imagination, the ability to imagine and acknowledge the reality of a thought, feeling, or action that's not one's own, in an age saturated with virtual echo chambers of aggrieved politics, aggrieved voices, and violent hatreds, a wallowing and valuing culture, as a New York Times journalist put it recently. Where do we locate the radical middle in this bewildering entanglement of media, technique, psycho, psyche, and ethos? Now, my reference to psyche and ethos comes from our colleague Amanda Anderson's recently published Oxford Clarendon Lectures that brilliantly stage our contemporary conundrum in terms of a careful reconsideration of the place of the moral in a context of what she calls widespread cultural tendency to privilege psychological and therapeutic frameworks. Amanda examines the implications of a devaluation of Aristotelian virtue ethics and new Kantian moral philosophy with a post-war era rise of psychoanalysis, critical theory, and in recent years, social psychology and cognitive science. That relegates in some sense, the moral in some senses to the realm of the post hoc coming belatedly. Amanda's exploration of the agonistic relationship between what she calls the psyche and the ethos, the moral and the psychological, I suggest is opposite in an era so full of outrage against all forms of oppression. It takes little imagination to see modes of resistance everywhere. Sanctimonious outrage appears to have become the defining affect and default intellectual stance across many of our campuses and in the public realm. Where in this scenario is the moral, one that is not reduced to the tsunami of anger and outrage that does not often distinguish between a righteous cause and a small slight? While Amanda does not write about the digital sphere in her book, um, uh, there are many openings, the focus is, is the literary and the humanistic, one sees the conundrum amplified in the digital realm. Our digital worlds feed a sense of perpetual insurrection and feedback loops that amplify ever more extreme voices, a swarm logic that infects our fragile democracies. What enables this online polarization, I put to you, what allows this to fester is an algorithmic logic, and this is what we are learning from humanists deeply engaged in this world of algorithmic logic, like Wendy Chun, who Jim mentioned. So it is now well known that when we feed machines data that reflect our prejudices, our inclinations, our political uh, ideologies, they mimic and amplify them. Facebook, 
Twitter and YouTube are such well-known amplification devices. And I'm not suggesting that's all they do, so, so we can discuss this. So when we dwell online and follow its social rituals, lives, retweets, we go through what in the language of network science is called a vectorization of the self. The term vectorization captures the process through which vast amounts of data from our online presence is stored as high-dimensional vectors of attributes. It is a process of converting an algorithm from operating on a single value at a time to operating on a set of values. It's kind of the logic is one of array programming. Software specifically designed to process vectors apply machine learning algorithms to classify users in a logic that divides us into cluster types set against each other. And these cluster types circulate in self-reinforcing feedback loops. And this is what critical data theorists like Wendy Chun have illuminated for us. The ways in which network science breathes homophily or love of the same in an algorithmic logic of correlation, not causality. It is a logic that is, in the final instance, segregationist. Programs developed by companies at the forefront of uh, AI research have resulted in a string of errors that replicate the darker biases of humanity. In famously in 2016, you would have read about this in the papers, a Microsoft chatbot called Tay spent a day learning from Twitter and began spouting anti-Semitic and pro-Trump messages. As long as an al algorithmic logic controls the fourfold me mechanics of media diffraction, one conceit in terms of form, transmission, mediation, interaction, it will continue to typify and tribalize the world in a dystopic world. So can the radical middle then take recourse or bring back the logic of the analog? Not in any nostalgic sense, but in, in a sense of keeping alive modes of comportment, of moral and psychological ways of dwelling, not overwhelmingly determined by the segregationist logic of algorithmic networks. Can we recover, for instance, the etymological origins of the term analog? from the Greek analogos, which actually means proportionate, in due proportion, measured, something that can be measured, that address to address the binary excesses of the digital. Reaching out to the analog as a concept metaphor allows us to ask what the algorithmic capture of the human occludes and distorts. It helps address, I, I would think, the, you know, there are data ethicists, uh, it's, a, it's a new field, and, and it's a live issue. So it helps address the ethical implications of vectorizing human behavior at a moment when such models have been weaponized by corporate, state, or parastate agents. In conclusion, I offer four propositions, just statements, no time to argue them. In this analogic mode, a mode that invites us to think proportionately, in measured ways. One, the radical middle is an ethical alertness to the dangers of an aggrieved and polarized politics that mark contemporary tribal nationalisms and extreme forms of identity politics. It inhabits the gap, to paraphrase Peter Hitchcock from another context, it inhabits the gap between the passionate spontaneity of opposition 
and the careful cultivation of oppositional practices in the face of systemic inequities and violence. Second, the radical middle is neither moral relativism nor moral equivalence between two positions in which one may be reprehensible due to lack of recognition that arises from centuries of systemic privilege. An example is all lives matter as against black lives matter, for instance. So it is not equivalence between these, nor, or for instance, from blatant self-interest, such as the fossil fuel lobby's climate denialism, or from pathologies of personality, such as Donald Trump's congenital tendency to lie. The mainstream media often falls into this trap of the golden mean fallacy uh, in order to appear nonpartisan, and that's not being in the middle. Third, the radical middle abjures both the partisan logic of tribes, that is, you have to choose one side, and, and neutrality also abjures neutrality in the face of unmitigated truths that affect humanity at large at this moment that we, we, we live in. Catastrophic climate change, rising sea levels, floods, forest fires, mass scale displacement of people, displacement of human labor by artificial intelligence, racial, gender, sexual violence. And finally, and here I might sound like I'm preaching, but I'll just put it there. <laughs> Lastly, the radical middle is a path towards ethical decision making based on a careful calibration of four coordinates that make up what ethicists call the Potter box model, derived from Ralph Potter, uh, the theologian and ethicist from the Harvard Divinity School. So these four coordinates are facts, values, principles, and loyalties. With loyalty to one's own kind coming in last if it clashes with the first three. Thank you. Thank you very much for elaborating the concept of the radical middle age. I proposed it. Um, what, what particularly strikes me as being both an insight and a challenge is to think proportionately with measure while not using a binary measure. And the fact that actually the attack on binarism has had such a long history in the humanities and thinking outside of the binary has a long and rich history, and somehow we seem to have lost our hold on it and lost our hope in it in order to elaborate something like the radical So thank you very much for your contribution. Ramesh. Well, thank you very much, Bodhi, uh, Sarah, Jane, for putting me in this very dangerous situation. Uh, let's see how we, we go. So two concepts were added to the lexicon of the university in 1948. Norbert Wiener's cybernetics with its roots in Greek meaning steersman, and apartheid coined by Henry Verwood, author of a thesis titled The Blunting of Emotions. One American, the other South African. The coincidence is hard to miss. In that same year, 1948, a judgment was passed down in the Supreme Court of the United States, written by Justice Frankfurter. 
In a recently published essay, Adam Sykes tells us that the U.S. judgment related to a case of academic freedom brought to court because a Marxist economist, Paul Sweezy, refused to answer questions to a state agency about his lectures. <laughs> Reading over the shoulder of Adam Sykes, we notice how the opening statement of the judgment drew directly from the academic freedom statements of two South African institutions, the universities of Cape Town and the Run, two liberal institutions faced with the, with the encroachment of racially prescribed laws introduced in the name of apartheid in 1948. We also discovered that Frankfurter's judgment established the constitutional protections of academic freedom in the USA in the aftermath of the Second World War. Were it not for Wiener's coining of the concept of cybernetics, I may have been tempted to conclude that academic freedom in the USA was a, consequences, was a consequence of drinking from the poison chalice of apartheid. Yet with Wiener's subsequent publication of the human use of human beings, cybernetics leads one to ask whether apartheid was perhaps a feedback from an American system of communication technology aimed at controlling academic freedom. Whichever explanation we offer in respect of the sources of the corruption of academic freedom, it is clear that the justification of academic freedom cannot be derived from within the law of academic freedom, especially when that law merely re-establishes the morality of a liberal claim that reinforces the sectarianism of the university. If academic freedom is haunted by the sectarianism of the modern university, we may opt to tell the story of the modern university, not in terms of the receding horizon of academic freedom, but the rising tide of sectarianism. Ironically, the sources of sectarianism lie in three defining moments of the very establishment of the idea of academic freedom. Consider, for example, Kant's conflict of the faculties, which is widely considered as a text that opens the space for academic freedom by setting apart public and state responsibilities of the university. The irony of the text notwithstanding, the conflict of the faculty absorbs an indecision about race which Kant wrestled from 1765 until 1798, passing through an essay on anthropology and ending with a text on the university. If the Kantian University institutes a bifurcation at the heart of the university as system, its surreptitious method of conscripting the object of indecision as supplement to the invention of the unprecedented is perhaps that which best explains the elusive radical middle. Consider a second example, the convergence of the British abolition of slavery in 1834 with the revolution in communication in science begun at Cambridge University and concluded at the Cape with John Herschel's preliminary discourse on the study of natural philosophy the text that later inspired Darwin's Origin of Species. The birth of a confident and affirmative natural philosophy in the 1830s in Herschel absorbed the racial remains of slavery into a seemingly innocuous method of an evolutionary system couched in terms of cosmic feeling. The shift produced by the scientific revolution at the end of slavery is wonderfully exemplified in works such as Boschner's Wojciech, Goethe's Faustus and Kentridge's recent rendering of both. With time, I would have revealed the third example in the Gestalt debates in the 1920s, where holism, that which underwrote the formation of the League of Nations, both established the European peace of the First World War and the ecological racism for which we now are paying the price. In the debates between Berlin and Leipzig, the architect of apartheid, Henry Verwood, would engage in a study of, uh, about distinguishing between psychological susceptibility 
and the human subject that would form data from the bedrock of the twisted paternalism of apartheid. So what then of the radical middle? I would argue that any search for such a middle will have to consider the shadow that apartheid casts over the university discourse. That if we thread through the emergence of the concept of academic freedom, if we tell it as a, as a different story, as a story of the formation of the sectarianism at the heart of the university, we might discover that there is more to account for than we, can care, than, than we care to admit to. Uh, secondly, I would also argue that perhaps for humanists, the best hope for establishing a radical middle rests in a struggle, as we know it, have it, over communication and control in animal and machine. And so I'm suggesting that perhaps what we're dealing with in the concept of mediation that others on the panel have, have, have asked us to think about is an opportunity to think again about that convergence in 1948 between apartheid and cybernetics, the one that produced the fundamental sectarianism that we struggle against in the university system today, and the other that offered us a way, a space to think again about the convergence between animal and machine that today is producing effects beyond our wildest imagination. Thank you. Thank you, my dear friends, for that thundering performance. Um, and I think one of the issues that really you do raise uh, very powerfully is the way in which apartheid and the um, what you call sectarianism also produces its own middles, its own mediation, but its own middles, which have to be carefully measured to go back to the previous talk and um, then consider outside of the Gestalt model or the Dantian separation of, uh, of division and separation of factors. Thank you very much. Please, Mark. Okay, thank you. Uh, thanks for the organizer inviting me to be here the first time to join the CHCI, the enemy team. And when I received the, the agenda of the radical middle, immediately I, the reaction was that the come up to me the term of the Confucius teaching that the that the golden name is talking about that the so-called golden name means that the certain kind of position between the two extremes. But it's as the other uh, is trying to define itself it's distinctly distinctively from the opportunism and the dogmatism. Why the dogmatism and the opportunism is Fail because partly the given condition was for Confucius was the collapse of the uh, the representation or the collapse of the ritual. Basically, the ritual became empty, but still you have the ritual practice without substance. In that sense, if you follow the dogmas, actually the follow the empty can allow different people input different things into it. That became another version of the optimism. So in that sense. A kind of the, the golden name means that they try to negotiate it in the concrete the, 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 the context between your principle and the, the real concrete realities. How to find the way to prove the gap between the form and the substance. So this, I think, is uh, the basic idea from the beginning. So in that sense, I think about the, uh, the how can we think about this issue in the contemporary context. 
basically, I think that uh, the questions that was uh, now the current we talk about a lot of the crisis of the crisis of democracy or the crisis of globalization, migration, and so on and so forth. Well, I think that the, the core issue uh, there was is the disjunction between the political and the social form. And all the contemporary social political systems, not only the liberal democracy, but also, of course, the, uh, the after the end of the socialist camp, were still some socialist systems there, and also other political systems face similar challenges. The, for example, the gulf between rich and the poor, the contrast between the city and the countryside, the uneven development of regions, and the last but not least, the ecological crisis, ethnic and religious conflicts, labor and the capital contradictions, which means that the traditional difference between the political systems in the forms is gone. If you only fix in that dichotomy between the tradition of socialism or the liberal democracy or the capital, then that, that, that the politics collapsed. In that sense, it's collapsed. So, the, in that sense, I summarize this crisis as in the notion of decline of the representation. It's best suited to the elucidate what has had occurred. The decline of representation in a contemporary politics invade a unique, multi-layered multi political crisis. The first of all is core aspect, a crisis of party politics, uh, that can be defined as a fracture of the representativeness, characterized by the discursive failure of the established political values in actual political processes, and by the consequential, uh, consequent legitimation crisis. In the wake of the social economic transformations, supposedly representative political systems have all at once lapsed into the serious crisis. Political, economic, and cultural elites and their interests have dissociated themselves from the masses. So this is also that, that give the other backgrounds of the rise of the populism. So uh, thus, the forming the social basis for the breakdown of representation. That the parties, the media, and the legal systems, despite the assurances that they stand for the general good, do not adequately represent the social interest and the public opinion. This is a direct expression of the breakdown of the representation. It points to the three, or maybe more, kinds of the crisis in democratic politics or the modern different forms of that the crisis of party or the party politics, wherein the party becomes contaminous with the state, what I term it as a statification of the political parties. In that sense, we used to define the political system in the 20th century as a party state or the party state. But now all the parties will become the state parties. Sometimes it sounds more left-wing, sometimes it's more right-wing, but it's not the, the, in the sense of political organization, in the sense of the 19th century and the early 20th century. So in that sense, it's a completely transformed, I think. And, uh, and the crisis of the, 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 the public sphere, that's uh, expanded the media sphere, uncoupled from this public space. 
On the one hand, you have the, the radical expansion of the, uh, the, the media penetrated into the every, every corner of social life, but not necessarily mean that the, the expansion of the public square. So it, it is coupled of that, these are tough how to overcome that one. And also, of course, the, the, these were all caused the legal crisis. That the legal system easily to be manipulated. But then caused the difficulties if you, because of this, and that if you attack the legal system, that could be the situation even worse. So that's another kind of the, uh, the, the background of this. So hence, in the discussing the breakdown of the representation, we have to pose the following questions. The first, given the transformation of party politics into the state party politics, are we entering an era of post or late party politics on the current conditions, even though these political entities continue to be the core of the political parties? They have different characteristics from those that prevailed in the 19th century. So the problem is that on the one hand, that the core of the crisis of the political system was a party. However, the whole political system, the framework remained unchanged how to deal with this kind of the issue. The second, how is the public sphere to be reconstructed and how can one set up a new political system on legitimate foundations? A prerequisite for the reconstruction of public sphere is the interpenetration of media and the political power, whereby the media mobilize the public opinion in order to influence the politics. To raise the question of the political system is not to deny the importance of forms and the procedures, but to search for the political culture that will enable these forms and the procedures to work. Third, what forces are in position to create the ideal foundations and the moral culture for the new politics of equality? As I said at the golden at the beginning, was certain kind of the search for the virtue for the exemplary person, the gentleman in the chaotic situation. In that sense, it's a real moral principle, the foundation for that. If the crisis of democracy can be understood as a breakdown of representation, and if the state continues to dominate the political sphere for a long time to come, is the democratic post-democratic politics possible? And if so, how? So let me summarize the arguments lay out above. In the aftermath of the Cold War, the democratic political system didn't undergo any significant formal change. Yet, democracy at the social level is in crisis everywhere. In China, we still maintain socialist, so 20th century forms, the socialist systems, while the system and the form of government has also not undergone fundamental change. Society has been so powerfully transformed that there was constant discussion about just what kind of society it is. The socialism with Chinese characteristics, capitalism with Chinese characteristics, and so on and so forth. I, I'm of the opinion that, as it's called, the current political crisis stems from the separation of the political system from the social form. The crisis in political legitimation is a consequence of the breakdown of re representation within the political system, that is the separation of the political and the social. So in that sense, when we talk about the uncompromised 
middle, we try to, the, the, the fundamental mission is try to improve that the gap between the political form and the social form. That in terms of the Confucianistic rhetoric, we're trying to, with the rhetoric, the, 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 the rituals with substance, which means the internalized, again, with the, 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 the political meaning. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, political discussion is long, and uh, the life of the session is short. So I will uh, try and very, very quickly just draw on some of the issues that I have personally found very helpful in, uh, in helping me to think this concept or idea that I threw out at the beginning. Uh, um, and, and then I want to open. Uh, more or less straight away, is assuming that the networked conversation between the panelists will occur through the larger network of the audience rather than having a panel discussion. So just very quickly, I want to say that I think we have found not necessarily a coherence but an interesting congruence of issues here. We started with, of course, Jim, who made it very local, but at the same, in a very useful way, but actually in extending the Burkean argument, whether it was to India or the French Revolution, showed us the ways in which the radical middle, as I understand it, is a space not only of transition, but of translation, and the ongoing work of translation, the ongoing work of translation and interpretation, which is what we do as humanists. And I want to dive back to our Practice. So I think that that is extraordinarily important, particularly if, as Burke said, and I thank you for that passage, that uh, political reason is a computing issue. It's a computing issue. And I think that that is a very central uh, perspective. And I then want to say that we move from Dublin and India and, 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 uh, and France, and then we came to this in, uh, I'm going to take them Johnny at the end, and I'm going to break this order. But then we came to this involution between apartheid and cybernetics. Um, from that position, I think we will move to this notion of the Confucius, the, the Confucian idea in the confusion of disjunctive principles, of, of disjunctive democratic principles, and I think. Thinking in the middle is thinking in the midst of, which again takes us back to the translational issue, and then advances us to trying to think about a movement politics, which I will come to in a second. But here I want to say that it seems to me that the critical method that is emerging out of this panel is one that relates to your suggestion that we think analogically uh, uh, so I think that in a, in a sense, there's this mechanism of analogical thinking and the aspiration towards it that has moved right through. I'd like to just suggest that when we have seen these narrow, um, 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 these narrow marginal decisions, whether it's Brexit or whether it was the first Indian election, not the second one, 
or whether it was the Colombian peace treaty, these, you know, these narrow uh, 2%, 3%, 1% swings, we tend to think about them as the swings of democratic party politics. I think they're not. I think they are, they represent a new kind of seismic crack in society, which is much less of a division, much less of a division. I think it's very much to do with movement politics, and when you have movement politics, the earth moves on either side, whether it's the left or the right, and you begin to have these cracks opening up. And I think we need to think across these cracks because they don't respect the usual party political rationalities. And I think that's the issue of movement politics. I also want to ask, why do anti-humanist sentiments and ideas have such a huge purchase in the world today? Racist, anti-Muslim ideas in India, um, um, the wretchedness of the, of, the, of, the, of the wretchedness of these suffering and just about surviving um, uh, refugees. Why do these anti-humanist principles have such a purchase? I think this is a very important question that we need to, we need to face. Finally, of course, I just want to say that the issue of the radical middle is also of putting uh, differential and differential scales together. Not only scales in terms of uh, large and small, not only scales in terms of those differences, but the ways in which scale is a problem of complexity. It's not a problem of size. And yet, in the notion of scale, we've got to measure. We've got to use the measuring scale continuously to understand where we are going. And in that sense, I think the radical mental takes us to this idea of working with inconsistency, working with different scales. And I think the uh, the notion of political reason as a computing principle is articulated in that last sentence is a good place for me to end and for the discussion to begin. <clears throat> Thank you very much.
claiming um, our own forms of intensified critique. I think anger is linked to satire too. Um, and and to uh, yeah, just to make careful distinctions. And in that sense, I just want to give a shout out to Deb Johnny for her principles, which I thought were really important. Then, then let's just come back to that for a second, and then we then we'll move on. You know. I made the point about affect right in the beginning, yeah. and I talked also about rage. Uh, more to understand what is happening with rage, because it seems to me that both anger and rage are linked with, with one issue, which is, which is to do with anxiety as an affect. And anxiety, it seems to me, is not that far from a self-critical sense of the rational. That's all I want to say. Since I, you know, I didn't want to set this on a wrong. Can I just ask, yeah. what would you say about outrage? Yeah, I'm yes, all for it. So while we are talking of affect and rage and outrage, I guess uh, I just want to also remind us, and, and this is something that I've been mulling over a lot that the problem is that often, and Laura Marcus has alerted us to this as well, that the thought of feeling, thought of affect, has an authoritarian underbelly. Because when someone is feeling in a particular way, the space for questioning, deliberation, uh, takes a back seat. Uh, and, and we don't know what happens when the, the collective anger, uh, you know, we, we kind of, scrambled to have a response to it. But I just want to put that out there. And which is not to say we shouldn't feel, but just a, yeah, just. Uh, what about, one week, just a bit on this particular issue, what about the outrage in Hong Kong? Which I think is a very important issue to, to, to talk about today. So, and we're going to move on in a second, but I just think that it would be great to, you on the outrage in Hong Kong, which has been very effective. Okay, I'm glad to cite the, the, the passage there. Uh, in the, the passage that the, the gene lists here, that some keywords that has complicated the situation. It's difficult to explain. Uh, for example, uh, we can talk about the uh, breakdown of the representativeness of the Hong Kong government and the, the, the political form and the social form. This yes. is on the one side. And then we can talk about the post-colonial legacy, especially the, the, uh, the no such have never undergone the long process of decolonization in Hong Kong. Because after the, uh, the end of the Cold War, that the whole situation, global situation, transformed. This is also the, uh, the one of the aspects, uh, the backgrounds. And then the, uh, the, the idea, the desire for democracy or the human rights, together with the radical the identity politics, were linked together to explain. And also, it's difficult to say and not mention that the, the background, the global backgrounds, because the whole hegemonic uh, structure were also there to see how to understand the, the rage. Uh, in, in out of the range of Hong Kong. So in that sense, the, uh, the, 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 the different kind of, in, this is a very good case for examining the idea of, of the radical middle, mm -hmm. in that sense, how to give 
uh, real sophisticated analysis to find a political, not only the solution, but a certain kind of position to understand it in the context. So thank, thank, thank you very much. Mike. Michael Barrett, Penn State. Uh, my question, which is of course more like a comment, is mostly for Deb Johnny, uh, but open to everyone. Um, I'm going to go back to something else that ha uh, some other speaker last year, Sura Lyat Hayanathan, who posted something on Facebook just before the 2016 election in the U.S., saying basically, chill out. On the one side, we have the best ground game in the history of national politics, and on the other side, they have a Twitter feed. The Twitter feed won, right? And it's been driving the news cycle ever since. And take an example from the academic left, and I'm not doing false equivalents in Inhomi's uh, spirit, uh, Stephen Salaya, uh, in 2014, being dehired by the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, not for anything he did in his research or his teaching, but for a Twitter <coughs> thread uh, about Israel's incursion in Gaza. I worry, I mean, my own antidote to the digitalization of discourse is, in fact, things like this, right? Analog deliberations with my colleagues over the course of days and really years, right? I worry that that's like the academic equivalent, equivalent of having a good grounding. And then meanwhile, the digital genie is not going back in that bottle, yeah. neither are the hideous forces it has unleashed. Thank you. And should we take Steve, and then we can then battle with this bomb? Yeah, Steve. Hello, Steve Connor, uh, Crash Cambridge. Uh, I, I want to try and answer to your question, Bobby, why does, uh, do anti-humanists discourses have so much purchase. Why? Because they're so radical. They have the libido of radicalism, which has been stolen from the left. Uh, and I say libido because I think libido is, libido is more powerful than affect, because libido is like the quantum state of affect before it's precipitated out into any particular affect. It's, as it were, pure intensity itself. And uh, that's, that's why deliberation doesn't work. You can't argue with a convinced Brexiteer any more than you used to be able to argue with the kind of um, Marxist radical I used to be. <laughs> that's very, that is very useful, and I think it does throw up this whole idea of what is deliberation now? I, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, the, the um, uh, Michael's point also uh, raises that question. When the stakes are so high and the tempers rage, what do we do? What, what do we do with the anger? Uh, yes, please. Will you introduce yourself here? Yeah. Let's take a lady, uh, let's take a woman, and then we can go to you, and let's take a, Yeah, okay, sorry, I... I yeah, yeah, no, no. Lydia. Lydia? Lydia. Yeah. Lydia Liu from Columbia University. I wanted to thank the panelists for their uh, very interesting responses to some of the most urgent issues uh, that are confronting us. I think Comey probably came up with this idea to um, address some of the issues. Uh, the radical middle, it, it seems it's, it is a, um, a response to the breakdown of the political imagination. Um, uh, and the kind of breakdown that Wangui suggested, not only uh, the breakdown of uh, breakdown political systems, uh, this juncture of social and political forms, but also the imagination itself. And if we're not talking about 
just along the spatial terms, like left, right, middle. Um, are we talking about, we, we have lost our grasp of what the political is, of where is the political? And I think this is the beginning of the self-questioning that you were calling for in the beginning. So where do we start? So that's the real question. And perhaps it's not in the spatial terms. Perhaps it's about position taking. Um, we don't know how to take the positions because we've lost our orientation. So that's one point. Another point Jane raised in, um, in, in, in one of the slides that he didn't have time to, to elaborate on. That is what Burke says about uh, political reason being comp computing. What was the uh, original phrase? The computing principle. And he goes on to say division, subtraction, multiplication, and all of that. And, and this is very interesting. So this is different. Like, where is the political? Then we move to the problem of the political reason. Um, and, uh, and then Kajani and uh, Pramash raised the issue of the digital and the cybernetic. The cybernetic, as uh, Pramash knows, uh, Novarina would then propose circular causality. So then we go from political reason to causality. It, it's not a question of Burke's idea of multiplication, division, all of that. Then we go to uh, Novarina's causality which is radically different, right? So then how do we rethink political reason? And then finally, I don't have the time, I'm taking up too much time, is the question of temporality, because a lot of anxieties come from our inability to cope with change, or transformation, uh, and just things just slip through. And I think really, we really need to address these issues. Thank you very much. I want to keep this on the table, this notion of temporality. I, try, I started with it in terms of the concept of transition. It's not spatial. And the computing principle is always a translation of time. So I want to keep that on the table. But let's get some more questions so that we can uh, respond. Can you? So yeah, thank you. And then up here, and then there. Yeah. I'm Lim from Korea. Uh, I want to talk about this from the viewpoint of memory activists. I'm a historian in my training, but now I define myself as a memory activist in my writing and doing. And it, it is really revealing. I think that this middle, uh, no, radical middle, it comes from a sort of self-reflection on the post-war radicalism. In the sense of Jim's citation of Burke, in proportion to that, they are metaphysically right, they were practically wrong. I think this really pinpoints the weakness of the post-war radicalism. Same happens to the memory studies. You know, big thinkers like Paul Ricoeur or Levinas, they have said about the justice for other, but did other usually they report the capital other in abstracts. But if we go down to the plural media others, there are too many differences and too many others that cannot be called in one big capital other. Even there are certain contradictions and certain conflicts, and ah, this post-radicalism may corrupt to use the thing, oh, small justices can be sacrificed by the big justice. 
This same Bolsheviks has practiced their politics and policies. Same mistakes had been inherited to the post-war radicalism and also today's so-called radical memory activists. In the sense, I think that this radical middle really, really inspiring to some uh, memory activists how to do with these uh, memories, immediate memories, and conflicting memories, which used to sacrifice millions of small justices for the big justice. And then, once these small justices are accumulated to be sacrificed by a big justice, big justice cannot remain a justice any longer. So in the sense that for me, as a memory activist, this uh, radical middle is really, really inspiring and revealing. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you very, very much. much. Thank you. Interesting, interesting point there about case thinking also, not just so the, the very the temporality case thinking. Sorry, I'm just trying to compute this rather quickly. Yes. Uh, no, no, this lady here, and then, and then we can go to you. Sorry, yes. Yes, ma'am. Uh, thank you. Um, thank you to you all for this wonderful talk. Um, and as you were talking about the radical middle, uh, I was thinking to myself that maybe uh, politics some 20 years ago or even uh, more in the past was mainly about ethos. Uh, and nowadays, politics is mainly about pathos. Um, and that's why we have this idea that politics nowadays is so irrational and so um, so so difficult to comprehend new concepts. Sorry, what was the second term? Ethos. Ethos. Yeah. So um, what what I would like to ask is if in your radical middle as a space of tra translation. Uh, we could think of some, I would call them, post concepts um, uh, to, to create a new uh, frame of, uh, I would rather say, post-human. Um, and here I use human as, as, a, <clears throat> as a concept that, that has, been, has suffered the effects of the degradation you also mentioned. Uh, at the beginning, could we think of new preconcepts uh, in this space of translation in order to give some sense to this to this translation, to the, this new space of speech acts or or uh, uh, language uh, in general to formulate? This Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to take one question there and one there, and then we will get back to the panel. Yes, please here. Yeah. Gentlemen, black suit. The dark question. <laughs> uh, Daniel Carey, National University of Ireland, go away. <clears throat> Just a quick point. We're obviously dealing with a vastly larger uh, issue than the US alone, and that was part of the purpose of the panel. But it's worth remembering that in the American case, uh, the majority of the electorate did not vote for Donald Trump. Um, his popularity has never risen above 50%, so we're really looking at a question about politics and the electoral system. And I wonder at times, and thinking about James' uh, very helpful contribution, can satire mobilize 
And are we a little bit too engaged in theorizing rather than doing actual political work? Mark, yeah. Mark, please. I'm so sorry, I didn't see you because, yes, I believe it's uh, Thank you. I, yeah, I apologize. Thanks for taking all of these questions. It's, um, and thank you for such a stimulating panel. Um, I, um, I just wanted to see what folks had to say about a quite different perspective on what the key issues are. And it may connect with the issue of outrage and anger that's been mentioned already. And that is that, you know, from a certain point of view, and actually not quite my own, um, <laughs> but I'm kind of channeling Jody Dean here at the moment. Um, one could say that the real problem is not one of balance or proportion or any of these issues, but that one-fifth of the world is living in poverty and that as much, um, you know, as much balance and proportion as you get isn't going to solve that problem. And so the real issue is how to focus interests on that problem and how to solve that problem. And so the question is one of mobilization around the right issues. Um, that, you know, I think that's a pretty, like, I'm trying to channel what Jody would be saying about this. Um, so I was just wondering about what people would have to say about that very, very different perspective that's not about the voicing of politics and how we get to a properly mediated position, but to ditch that and focus on um, really, really um, urgent issues of economic inequality and starvation. Sorry, uh, I no very close to time, and I've been told that we actually have to end on time. But I, I have to look. A lot of these have been comments. You can have it with Jane, but I, I just worry that... Um, I, I, I have to hear these two ladies. If you, I'm sorry. I just have to hear them. There have been a lot of comments here. We can have the discussion afterwards, but I can't end without having them speak. Sorry, I would like to interfere with five minutes. I keep it short. Please. So uh, a question rather than a comment. Yes, it's just it's just a question. What is the role of the radical middle in in today's time when we think councillors and we react is all that we seem to be doing? Thank you. Is this Lori Lapidets from Northeastern? Um, uh, I thank you for uh, for letting me speak and I, and for these very fruitful conceptualizations. But I, I feel a certain urgency to ask about the corruption of some uh, theoretical com complexities. For example, a concept like intersectionality, which becomes simplified to then um, create a kind of um, situation where, a situation of asymmetry, where on one side of the political, um, the practical political arena, we have um, circular firing squads and eating our own because we can't mobilize or create solidarity around issues like um, poverty or hunger. And um, I, I have to ask you please to conclude because there's one further comment that we need to take. Oh, absolutely. So again, I want to ask about it, to introduce the question of intersectionality. Yeah, last question. Thank you. Zoe Norwich, King's College London. 
The UK organisation Hope Not Hate has done some very compelling evidence um, about how the far right has succeeded in pushing all political discourse in the UK and elsewhere to the right. So my question for you is, I know that you're not talking about being centrist, but if you're talking about a space of mediation, is there anywhere left in that space of mediation to talk to, or will you end up just looking like apologetic leftists with nobody to talk to? So does that make you complicit in this overall shift to the right? Yeah, we may be leftists, we're not apologetic. <laughs> yeah, a very quick yeah, run through. Thank you very much for that comment. I, I... Yeah, I want to say that one of the reckonings that we had to come to terms with in the moment of the emergence of the post-apartheid was that we got apartheid completely wrong, that we misrecognized the symptom, that we did not see what we were dealing with. And I want to argue that in some ways I'm trying to recuperate some space for the political to name apartheid as university discourse, to see in the long genealogy that connects that moment in the 1830s with the abolition of slavery and what followed in the, in the realm of communicative reason and subsequently you know, the revolution in communication technologies, that we have a singular crisis here for the problematic of race that extends beyond uh, the institutional space of the university to the way in which university discourse organizes the political. Please, please. Um, so, um, the question of the political uh, imaginary, there is a deep crisis. I do think um, that I, I am very much, for me, Greta Thunberg, what she represents, the whole idea of, the, of a planetary imagination. We can talk more about it because it's a shorthand and it's, it's been corrupted on its own. But, but that's kind of an emergent and that's, that's where I have a response to Mike Michaels about the, you know, the pessimism of no matter what we do, it's ineffective. And, and that's precisely my, my point that, that we, are, we don't continue to do the same things, but it is the cumulative effect of what we continue, what the Waitman Bournes who, who writes about, the pushes back against the whole polarization of Holocaust history. Uh, uh, you know, we have to keep doing that discursive, political, ethical work. I cannot see it ground to the, the pessimism. Just one very one very short ex example. Recently from, from uh, out, we were all outraged, we uh, Indians, where the current elections, a figure like, non-sectarian figure like Rabindranath Tagore was suddenly appropriated by the Hindu right to say, look, we found passages where he hates Muslims, <coughs> right? And immediately what we had were, were a set of very distinguished historians immediately take to the to the media, to the papers, and write and deliberate and actually demonstrate. And I am sorry, maybe I'm optim that's my that's where my optimism lies. I will not cede ground to to that. That's that would be my response. I think that's clear. The whole panel is about not ceding ground. And you have to say something very quickly, very quick points, um, both about Burke. When we talk about a political, when Burke talks about a computing, well, political reason as a computing principle, which a number of you mentioned, that's actually a concession to the emerging field of political economy. He's actually against what he calls calculation. The age of chivalry is gone, the age of calculators and economists is upon us. And the emphasis there, the first part of the concession, the emphasis is on dividing and, and multiplying morally, true moral denominations. And one very quick point looking forward to the film tonight. 
We've been talking about mediation and being in the midst. There's an interesting tension here that we have to sort out. In the film tonight, you'll see um, uh, Stephen Ray begin by Jim White. This is really the introduction to the. the it's real fast. It's real. It's tonight. This. He, he'll say to Jacob Rieson, "You have to be here on the border to know, right? It's being in the midst." Uh, and, and Burke said, "The problem with empire is you weren't there." There's a sense in which that's the unmediated too. There's a contradiction within the notion of mediation that we're working with, where being in the midst is the unmediated thing it, that, you, that, that, that can't be represented, and that tension is deep in our that, that tension is deep in what we're saying. Can we do it? Okay, maybe. All actually we discussed above is the result of the demonetization process in the last decades. So in that sense, we talk about the repoliticization, but we don't know what kind of position we can start from there. That's why the leader's question is really to the point that what is a new political. But that also back to the history of historians to see the history that the moment we see the whole transformation, maybe certain kind of the new social form is emerging. So in that sense, we really need to follow up that process to to learn and study there to find some new categories to to reimagine, to reframe our political discourse. I agree with that. All. The, uh, the, the discourse that sometimes the failure of the left left wing politics was in the form of the rhetoric of victory. Because certain kind of right wing politics can use after the left wing the, the discourse where to enhance their legitimize their the, the issues. That, that certain kind of the form of the outrage was always uh, in frame. Uh, it, it, Reframed by that kind of Well, I just want to end by thanking you all for being here today. My apologies for not being able to 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 carefully distinguish between questions and contributions, but that's the nature of these events. I want to end with just two things. One, Mark Bloch's notion of disappointed hope, which was then taken on by Adorno and elaborated. I can't even describe it, it's about my new work, and Ram Manohar Lohia from India who said, however bad the situation is, we have our duties of despair. And I think there is a kind of optimism in that. Thank you.